Thanks, James. James's introductions are always just so over the top, and I know this. Uh, he says that I pack barrels, but I've never caught a barrel in my life. <laughs> so it feels good. It's almost like he's just rubbing it in a little bit every single time that he gets up there. It's like, remember how you haven't actually gotten a barrel? Thanks, James. Um, it's good to be with everyone. Uh, surprisingly, no one has mentioned this before, but what is today? Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, I have to start with a confession. I haven't watched a single football game all year. Not one. Not one start to finish, nothing preseason, nothing regular season. I watched half of one playoff game. Oh, but I did watch the PV Penn freshman football game. That's right. And what was the score? 34-20, PV won. That was the only game I watched start to finish. It was a great game. PV just demolished them, but it was fun. I think it's because I did the chapel for the PV team that service. The Lord bless them. Uh, are there any Bengals fans here? That's good. Okay. All right. That's a good start. I was going to say, uh, we're all as a church going to come around you and lay hands on you. Uh, you have until about 3 o'clock to repent. Um, but I think this is why I'm preaching today. It's just because football is not my sport. Uh, I married a Canadian, so uh, hockey. Yeah, hockey's now it. It's kind of like the prerequisite is you marry a Canadian, hockey becomes your thing. So I prefer the Stanley Cup to the Super Bowl now. This is my confession in front of everyone. I'm going to be more excited in a few months when uh, the Maple Leafs are finally ending their 17-year drought of never making it past the first round of the playoffs. This is the year. I sound like a hopeful Leafs fan, but uh, the Leafs tank it every year. When I was preparing, I was thinking about all the Super Bowl jokes that I need to make, uh, but I forgot that was Valentine's Day tomorrow. <laughs> so it's an especially awesome Sunday. We have Valentine's Day tomorrow, too. And hopefully, you spouses can capture this moment as an early Valentine's Day gift of doing all the cleanup that the Super Bowl party requires. Whoa, what a gift. Think about that. But what we have to talk about today, I'm really excited about. Uh, and in my mind, I think this is more exciting than the Super Bowl, also because I'm not a huge football fan. But I think that the Lord has a good word for us today. So the last month or so, we've been talking about uh, the sermon series, Ecclesia, and that is the Greek word for church. And so we've been re-examining what does it mean, what does it look like to be a part of the church? What does the church look like? What does it constitute? What are its characteristics, its behaviors, its life rhythms? And this is what we are examining together, and this is a conversation that is happening all around, inside the church, outside the church. This is a conversation that everyone is happening, it's happening, everyone's noting. This last week, I was sent an article by a dear friend of mine from Vancouver. Uh, she's this beautiful 73-year-old woman who is just so healthy, loves walking, and it was awesome. And she sent me this article about the decline of evangelicalism and said, Luke, I'm concerned for you. Uh, I want to make sure that you're not going to the dark side of the moon. That's the way she, It was kind of like a reverse evangelism. Uh, where she was like, watch out. So this conversation, all that says, this conversation is happening right now, all around us. And so we as a church are entering into this conversation and want to 
discuss and provide a way forward with this. What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the people of God, a community, the people who are seeking after God and loving God? And then the conversation turns to, the question that you then ask is, okay, where do you look to when you're trying to answer that question? Where do you look to when you try to assess and find, what does it mean to be the church? I mean, the pandemic has really heightened this question for a lot of us. Do I really need that? Is that something in my life that I actually need? So do we look to personal experiences? Do we look to scripture, tradition? Do we look to Instagram, Facebook? And we as a church believe that, at least in part, a major part of this is us looking to the Bible again. And so we've been examining the scriptures and looking at each of these books of the New Testament, the letters that Paul wrote, and examining these letters, saying, okay, what do they have to teach us about what does it mean to be the church? Last week, we looked at Ephesians, and Paul, Paul, Todd, taught on how, yeah, Paul, Todd, about the same, right? He taught on how the church is a place where we change, where we grow, where Christ changes us, where we put on these new clothes. And we also talked about Galatians and how there's freedom in Christ. And on it goes. And this morning, we're going to open up the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, or your phones. What we're going to find today, what I want to uh, postulate before you, is that the church is a community of people who is open to God changing every facet of their lives. Every single area of our lives is open to God changing it. This is what we find in the book of Philippians. You cannot leave this book without noticing that everything for Paul, everything for the Philippians becomes about Jesus Christ, becomes about the gospel, comes about the faith, the good news that Jesus Christ has come into this world, has died and rose again. Everything in their lives was changed. As I was preparing this sermon, I've noted eight things, eight ways that the Philippians' lives were changed by this gospel. Eight different things. I think the longer I've studied this, I think it goes up to 15 or 20. But here's the eight. I want to read them to you. Eight different ways, and as I read them, be thinking through these aspects in your own life. These are eight different ways that the gospel has changed them. First, they belong to a new city with a new king. The gospel gave them a new political allegiance. Second, is they had a new drive for unity. They were not content on being disunified. Third, they had friendships that were now about Jesus, centered around Jesus, and centered for Jesus. Fourth, is they had new examples of people to look up to. The old examples passed away. The new examples of how, who they imitated came in. Fifth, they had a new vision of the end of life. What happens when we die changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Six, they had new financial plans. They had new financial goals. They had new financial purposes. The way that they spent their money, the way that they saw their money, was set free by faith in Jesus Christ and what he had done. Seventh, they had new markers for the right way to live. The old ways of success changed. The old ways of thinking about, I'm living right, I'm living the religious life right, changed because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Eighth, They had a new joy. Their joy was now centered in Jesus Christ and suffering with Jesus Christ. 
It all changed. And this is just eight. There's more. But every single thing in the life of the Philippians had changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's true for us. Being a part of the church, being a part of the community of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ means that we are a people who allow God to change every single area, every single facet of our lives. What does this mean, though? What does this look like? And that's what I want to explore with you together more in detail this morning. So we're going to look at two of these things, two of the ways that the Philippians were changed by the gospel. So I'm going to read this text. If you're there, I gave you so much time. Philippians 1, uh, verse 27 through 30. I'm going to read it for us, uh, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll unpack it. I'll make a couple observations and draw out the implications. Philippians 1, 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Living God, we believe that this text was um, inspired by your Holy Spirit. And that was written by a human author in his own style and language, but we believe that this text uh, still stands true today and that you have a word for us this morning. And so we ask in your loving mercy that you would help us understand this text and apply it to our lives. For we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so I have two observations about this text, and then I want to draw out the implications of those observations for our life today. Observation number one is that the Philippians now belong to a new city with a new Lord. Everything changed for the Philippians. Every area of their lives changed, and the Philippians now belong to a new city with a new Lord. You may be aware that Philippi was a military Roman colony. I'm sure you guys all knew that fun fact. You had it lined up, ready to go. But the Philippians, the city of Philippi, was founded by this guy named Caesar Augustus. You might have heard of him before. There was this major battle there that destroyed the city, and when he was rebuilding the city, he sent military veterans there to establish it. He gave them these large land grants, and it was in this fertile plain. And so the city itself constituted of many military men. That was the ethos of the city, this military pride. It was this Roman military outpost in a Greek area. So daily life in that city lived and breathed that military mindset and lived and breathed the Roman pride. You couldn't go a single day without knowing where you belonged. There was a certain way to live, certain expectations, certain way that you're supposed to carry yourself because you were a part of this city. And this was true of many cities of that time. Aristotle, in his book on politics, wrote that 
the city that you live in determined the meaning of your life. Any city that you lived in determined how you carry yourself, what your purpose was, where you looked to for help, for support, your religious life. Everything about it was tied into the city that you lived in. And this was true for the city of Philippi, and it was connected to the Roman Empire. It was connected closely with what it meant to be Roman. I think of the movie 300, and you're kind of getting a better image of what this was like. So part of the daily life for the Philippians was worshiping Caesar. It was part of their life rhythms, you couldn't go a day without it, that you would pay homage to Caesar, that you would worship Caesar. I don't know exactly what this ritual was like, but we know that it happened. That was the expectation that every single day, very often, you would be paying homage to Caesar. But then Paul comes in. Paul comes into this town. It was one of the major cities of the area. And he comes in with a different message. He comes in with the message that, yeah, Caesar thinks he is king, but he's not. There's only one king, one emperor, Jesus Christ, who truly reigns. And Paul wants to make this point very clear to the Philippians, very clear to this young church. He wants to make them understand that it is not Caesar who is king. It's not Caesar who has ultimate authority. It may feel that way. I'm sure it felt that way for the Philippians because they were part of the Roman Empire, which in that time was the biggest empire the world knows. There is nothing bigger, nothing greater, and Caesar was on top of it. Oh, it feels like Caesar's in charge. It feels like Caesar runs the world, but Paul comes in, this humble man, saying, no, there's only one Lord, only one Savior, Jesus Christ, and he has ultimate authority. More often in this letter than any other letter, Paul uses the words Lord and Savior. And this was this little catchphrase, this little slogan that was usually attributed to Caesar. Caesar thought of himself as the Lord and Savior. And so when Paul uses this, it has this punch to it, it has this little this, uh, kind of undermining of what the Roman Empire mentality is. It's as if I was going to write a letter to you today, and I said, Jesus Christ alone is going to make everything great again. Jesus Christ alone is going to build back everything better. Only Jesus Christ can do it. You would hear it. You got it. I'm sure you knew who I'm talking about when I said that. You understand this undermining of the mentality that you're looking to these figures, and that's wrong. It's Jesus Christ alone who is going to save. Jesus Christ alone is the Lord and Savior. So Paul so often is writing to this, and so clearly does he want to get this across, that he then writes in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't get this in our translations. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of it doesn't come through with the full force that Paul had originally penned it. Conduct yourself worthy. This is a translation of a word that has, or is better translated as, live as citizens of. The root of this word is polis, poly, city. 
And we know this, this word comes into our language today in words such as politics, policy, police, metropolitan, cosmopolitan. The root word is city. So we know this. So what Paul is saying here, he's commanding them. He's saying, live as citizens worthy of the gospel city. He's saying, you now belong to a new city, a new polis. The gospel polis, the gospel city. And there are now new policies and new ways of living that are now true for you because you belong to this gospel city. You belong to the city where Jesus Christ is king. You belong to a new way of living. And this would have been huge for the Philippians. There was this mentality of, I'm going to live as a Roman And now it's changed. I'm going to live as a Christian. I belong to this new city. There is a new way of living because we have a new king. So yes, we belong still to this old city. We are still residents of this old city. But really, we belong to a new city. A city with a new king. This is one of the primary metaphors kingdom. The primary metaphors when speaking about the church, speaking about the people of God. Jesus Christ comes in. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and the king is here. Be a part of the church means that we are a part of this new kingdom. That means that we are a part of this city that has new implications for the ways that we live, the ways that we conduct ourselves. We belong to a new city with a new king. And this is good news for us. This is good news that we now belong to a new king. I think this is good news for a few reasons that I want to flush out for us today. Okay, so here's the implication. So this is the truth, is that We now belong to a new king with a new kingdom. And this is how I think it affects us. We worship a king who reigns forever. Think about all the kingdoms, all the dynasties throughout history. It's hard for us Americans because our history is so short. But think about the Han Dynasty, the Mongolian Empire, Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire. Think about the Aztec Empire, the Inca Empire. Or think about Benito Mussolini or Joseph Stalin or the British Empire that tried to colonize the world. Or think about the Tom Brady dynasty that's now over. All these kingdoms have come and they have gone. Every single one of them. But we have one king who sits enthroned forever. At the time that this letter was written to the Philippians, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was king. He was Lord. Now, 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is still king, and he is still Lord, and his truth does not change. The way of living in his kingdom does not change. Yes, it's contextualized into our culture, into our area, but he is still king, and the way of living into his gospel polis, into his gospel city, does not change. What does this mean? It means that we don't need to get caught up into the same political discussions that set our hope ultimately into the government to save us. 
We look to the one person who can truly save us, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior of all. Now, I'm not saying that discussions about government aren't important. They're very important. And that's what I hope that this starts, is these conversations around government and gospel. About how we work out what it looks like to belong to this kingdom, to belong to this king, and live in this democratic society. But ultimately, it means that we look to Jesus Christ to save us. Ultimately, it looks to belong to the kingdom in ways that show and model that we belong to the gospel polis, that we care for the poor, that we care for the press, that we care for the widows and orphans, that we live in this way, in this life, where every single thing of our lives is changed by the gospel. Implication number one, belonging to the city means that we look to Jesus and embody the ways of Jesus for change in the world. It's not ultimately the government. Okay, implication number two is that living in this kingdom gives us a new way to understand power. Living in this kingdom gives us a new way to understand power. Jesus Christ reigns as king forever, but the way of his kingdom is different than the way of this world. He reigns in righteousness and peace and justice forever. His kingdom comes and his goodness comes. The ordinary means of the gospel is more and more people who believe and confess and embody this. His kingdom comes by you and I embracing the good news that is blessed to be meek, that is blessed to mourn, that is blessed to suffer with those who are suffering. His kingdom comes with this new mentality of what it means to show, embody, and demonstrate authority. We all know right now that every single institution is under the microscope of how they are using or abusing authority. We are assessing everything under the lens of power dynamics. How are the people in authority treating or mistreating those who are under them? It's everywhere. I mean, we think about uh, Ellen DeGeneres and her show. We think about uh, what's happened with Ravi Zacharias here in National Ministries. We think about Kennecook Cook Camps. We think about the Roman Catholic Church. This is inside the Christian world. This is outside the Christian world. There's a new shift in thinking in our culture right now where we are examining the power relationships and dynamics. And praise God for this. I'm not against this. I think there's so much good and beauty that's coming from this because we do need authority to be checked. We do need to rejoice when people who are abusing their power are called out. We're asked to reform, to change themselves. We do not want injustice to continue. So praise God that we are coming through this lens. And I think that this is why it's really important that we as a church community understand and embrace the kind of power, the kind of authority that our king and this new gospel polis demonstrates. What is this power? He shows us. Paul tells us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, 
Although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of. The king. Jesus Christ. It gives us a snapshot of what Jesus was thinking in heaven. Think about that. Jesus was thinking in heaven before he came to earth, being fully equal with God. He did not consider this, equality with God, something to be taken advantage of something to be grasped, something to hold on to. He did not think that his equality with God was something to be taken advantage of. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in human form. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thanks for cleaning our beaches. It's beautiful. It's humbling. It's majestic. Jesus Christ in heaven did not consider This was to be taken advantage of. All the power, all the authority in the world, he says, I'm going to use this and empty myself in service for you and for me, for humanity. This is power demonstrated. This is what it means to be God. Think about it. To be God means to empty yourself in service of others. To be like God, to be a citizen of this gospel polis, following our king, means that we do not consider our advantage something to be grasped, but we empty ourselves in service of others, becoming obedient to God. Yes, even to the point of suffering. And this is good news, because if this takes hold, man, we're going to see everything change. We would see every institution in this world change. If we, the church, then embody this, embrace this, we will see everything change. And this is good news for us, and it's good news for the whole world, that Jesus as king has come, and that he has shown us what it means to have power. May we embrace this power, because this is good news for the world. So, observation number one. The Philippians' lives were changed, and our lives are changed, because we now belong to a new city with a new king. And there is a new way of living. In that new way of living, we no longer look to the government as the ultimate authority. And in this new way of living, we have a new vision of what power looks like. Okay, observation number two. As new citizens, the Philippians now strive for unity with each other by and for the gospel. Second observation, the Philippians now strive for unity with each other by and for the gospel. We pursue unity as a church in a new way because of Jesus Christ as king. And this was a concern for Paul. This is one of the reasons why he's writing this letter to the church. Someone who was from that town of Philippi came and visited Paul when he was in prison. And he told Paul about, you know, there's this division that's happening among them. And Paul was concerned about this. And he also was aware that there's this external force that was putting this pressure on the church. But so consistently throughout Paul's letter, as he's trying to emphasize and stress how important it is for the church to be one for the church to be of one mind, for the church to be of one accord, for the church to be striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. 
So consistently, one, 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 one. Be one. Because Paul saw that the internal division was hindering the advancement of the gospel. Their internal division was hindering the advancement of the gospel. And we all know what this is like. If there's internal division within the team, the team is not going to function to its full capacity. Or, alternatively, if you can see the dirty laundry of someone else, you know what's going on inside, and you're not going to give them the same weight, the same effectiveness. I don't know which one it was, but Paul looked at this young community and was saying, you not being one is hindering the advance of the gospel. The people looking on and looking in see this disunity. They know that you're supposed to be one. Indeed, Christians profess that we are one by the love that we have in Jesus, but yet there's disunity. So Paul writes to them. We all know disunity in our day and age too. I mean, we live it, we feel it. We know that there's quarreling. We know that there's big ideological differences right now. We know the heightened emotions. We feel it all. And I want to put before us together in, in humility that I think this is also hurting the advancement of the gospel. I think our disunity needs to be checked. Not that we need to try harder, but man, that we need to pray. That we need to invite God into these relationships. We see disunity everywhere. I mean, the American church and capitalism is founded on the idea that we kind of just sort ourselves into these homogenous units of people that we get along with, that living life is easy with. And there's good to that. I'm not saying that's all bad or wrong or anything like that. But what I am saying is that we've now created this new predicament where we're all in these isolated little pockets, these isolated little communities. I think the next step is for us to work through and work on how do we live together? as a bigger body, under this one king. Because the outside world is looking in. They are. The church is under scrutiny. And not all for bad reason. And I think this is an area of our lives as a church that we need to step into and embody. And it's going to be tough. And it's going to be hurtful and hard and difficult. I think this is an area that the Lord is leading us into. So I'd like to postulate that before you today, is how do we have this unity? What does it look like for us to embrace that? What does it look like for us to be one for the gospel? I think one of these ways is a shift in focus. I think oftentimes our discussions about what are we free from, and this also ties back into the political conversation that we as a society are so concerned about what we are free from or external authority forces imposing something on us. Both the right side and the left side, they're both saying this in their own ways. John Mark Comer has helped me see this with clarity. Right? The right side is saying, 
we don't want masks, we don't want vaccines, we don't want any of these restrictions on us, we want to be free. The left side saying, you as a society can't impose your ideological beliefs on me. I am who I am. I don't want you to impose this on me. This is my freedom to choose and to know who I am. So both sides are saying it in their own way. They're seeking freedom from something, from some source that's external and imposing on them. I think a way forward for us is not thinking through what we are free from, and we do think through that, but our focus is not what we are free from, but what we are free for. We know that we have freedom in Christ, but we have freedom for something. We're not just free from something that we get to live however we want. We are free for something. We are free for a cause, for a purpose, for a mission, for the glory of Christ who has come. And this is good news for the world, that the church is now free from something for the gospel. We are free for the proclamation and for the embodiment of the good news that Jesus Christ has come, and this changes everything for our world. It changed everything for us. We are now free for something, and our for something is going to unite us. That we are free for justice to come down. We are free for the good news of Jesus Christ saving lives. We are free for the gospel of Jesus changing culture. All of this, we are free for together. And I think this is one way forward for us is that we now start being united around what we are free for in the advancement of the gospel. And this is good news for the world. For the church and for the world. So observation number two is that belonging as citizens to this new kingdom, we strive for unity in a new way. And this unity provides us around being free for the gospel. I have so much hope. I do. I have hope for us that the more that we embody the mentality of the king, the world will change. The kingdom will come through Christ. And this is good news.